0: Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you guys here with us for episode 35. In today's episode, we decided to talk about guns. Because
1: why not? Yeah, we rolled a dice and it landed on guns. It landed on guns and we said,
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> there you go. This is what we'll talk about. Nothing
1: to do with current events where there were some shootings and things. Nothing to do with any of that.
0: Nothing to do with
1: the fact Luck of the draw.
0: That The White House press secretary has said that Biden is considering executive action on gun control, that there have been several prominent legislators talking about pushing legislation through on gun control. Nothing to do with any of those things. It was purely coincidental.
1: So here we are. Guns. They go boom. So we made an outline (laughs) and we've
0: got four main points that we'd like to cover. Point number one, they go boom. Point number two, they are cool.
1: If you don't understand point two, refer back to point one. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.
0: Point number three, they are expensive, but not that expensive. And point number four, AR-15s are worshipped without just cause.
1: That's true. Now, now, now that is, that, that, a is a, that is a very
0: point. controversial statement that has nothing to do with what we want to talk about this episode, but I wanted to make it at the beginning just to piss off half of our listeners. So those of you who are out there who are big AR-15 fans, I, I don't know what to say to you. I don't know what to say to you, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful, Brad. We appreciate you bringing that to the table here today. I, gun control is a fun topic for a variety of reasons. One of which is that it is riddled with irrelevant statistics. I don't think there's another topic where you will get fed more statistics that have nothing to do with the problems and questions and more, more inane correlations that people try and say prove something that when there are obviously better ex- explanations. Yep.
0: yep. The good news is, is that whether you believe in gun control or you don't believe in gun control, you will have dozens and dozens of studies that prove your point conclusively. Whether you're trying to prove that that gun control works and that it reduces crime or whether you're trying to prove the opposite, the good news is, is there's a study out there for you that seems to prove that, you know, and they'll take a look at different cities and different areas and they'll find these correlations and say, here you go. It's clear this increase in gun control saved these lives or this increase in gun control did the exact opposite. Pick your poison, and I'd like to have a shout out here real quick to uh, the book Freakonomics, because Freakonomics has a section on gun control, either the first book or the sequel, but I'm pretty sure it's the the original Freakonomics. They talk about a lot of these studies, and they look at how poorly the data is gathered and how poorly the data is analyzed, which is why you can have so many contradictory studies about the same subject. And if you're ever interested in learning a little bit more, about statistics and how they work in a book that's written for the layman. Go take a look at Freakonomics. It's a book that helped open my eyes to how you view the world and how you view the information you receive to make sure that you're actually getting accurate data and accurate information that will help you make correct decisions. And gun control is definitely Is definitely one of those. But before we go any further in talking about the efficacy of gun control, we want to talk about the morality of gun control. It's something that is often overlooked in these discussions. Typically, when we discuss gun control, we discuss it only in a utilitarian perspective. Does it cause more violence? or less violence? Are there more murders or less murders because of gun control? And that is the only litmus test that is considered when discussing it. Is it gonna help people or is it gonna hurt people? And of course you might ask, what other thing would you look at? If we're talking about violence, let's look at the violence. And that absolutely makes sense. If we're talking about gun control, we wanna look at what's happening, right? But but the one aspect that we're forgetting here is that gun control, is a government action. And that government action is never so clear cut. And government action is one of two things. It's either just or unjust, just like all actions. But government action in, in particular and we've, has to have a justification for it, has to have a moral justification for it in order for it to be morally just, right? Ipso facto. What are the moral justifications for gun control? Because There being less death, less violence, is not enough of a justification. And here's my evidence for that. Eugenics. Eugenics could theoretically be used to prevent all sorts of... Utilitarian crises. You could use eugenics to control starving children, to reduce murder, to reduce all sorts of things. And that's something that they talked about in the 1900s was really popular. That idea of controlling the population through eugenics would have all of these fantastic results, but it would be morally unjust to do it for obvious reasons. And almost no one supports eugenics today because of those moral reasons. Because utilitarianism is not enough of a moral justification and because utilitarianism argues that it's justified to kill a, a thousand innocent children as long as it saves a thousand and one other innocent children. People don't believe in scientific research on human beings that kills them. You know what I mean? People will not agree to that even if the end results might be better for humanity. So you have to have another justification beyond it's better for humanity because you have to look at the costs as well. You can't just look at the the net benefit cost ratio. You have to look at what's actually happening and the moral justification for it.
1: Yeah, to destroy a human life, to, to affect a human life negatively is not to affect one cell in a body. We're not this body called humanity. People are there are an end in themselves in so many ways. You they they live to make themselves happy, to make others happy. They can make the choices in their life and do all these things. They're not just some cog in the machine that you can sacrifice for the benefit of the machine as a whole. If there is a purpose to society, if there's a purpose to association, it's for the benefit of all the people involved. It's not for the benefit of some at the expense of the others. And as soon as you accept utilitarianism, you accept that some can be sacrificed for the many. And at that point, they should be, right? If you look at humanity as this whole thing, as, this, as, as what's important yeah, is the progress of humanity. then you can be justified
0: in cutting off an arm to save the body, you know, is, is the classic yeah. medical example.
1: Yes, yes. And the arm in this case being this group of people, right? Or this person. And, and obviously, this is entirely amoral belief, and the irony is that there is no such society that can be made happy, right? You're making some people happy and others miserable. Mm-hmm. Point. You're you're acting unjustly to some to give benefits to other people, and it's that simple. You as soon as people think of, well, as an American people, we need to do this. What you're actually what actually happens is some people benefit, some people lose, and you are hurting some people to help others. If you don't have something more than something that that requires you to use force, to use the the power of government, to use the to use violence against these people, to make them do something then you are overreaching, as Brad said. And so with guns, how does this relate to guns? Because a lot of people think that
0: guns really aren't a right because you don't need a gun to live. You know, you can go and still do all the things you'd like to do, and you don't actually need a gun. They're more a privilege than a right. And so it's not a serious problem to restrict gun ownership.
1: Yeah, as long as you have a full life, what does it matter? Yeah,
0: exactly. That comparing gun control to eugenics is insane. Is and And of course, I agree with that, that eugenics and gun control are not in any way, shape, or form on the same scope. My point is that you need something beyond utilitarianism in order to justify your actions. And so... What is the thing that's being taken away when you take away someone's gun? Because, because it is more than just a physical object. And the answer is it's very simple it's their right to life. Because the right to life is predicated on your right and your ability to defend that life. If you don't have a right to defend your life, then that life is in many ways no longer yours because you lack the ability. To protect it, to keep it.
1: Yeah. If I said you can live, but you can't have food. <laughs> yeah. And I went out of my way to stop you from getting food, obviously that has to be entailed by the right to life that at least I'm not preventing you. Maybe I'm not handing you food, but I'm, if I'm preventing you, then I am threatening your life. Similarly, if someone needs to defend themselves or, or wants to defend themselves justly, we're assuming that they're, they're acting justly here, then you preventing them from defending themselves is an attack on their life and on their right to life. So gun control legislation is
0: going to be unjust to the degree that it stops individuals from being able to defend themselves. And here you'll notice we've come full circle because obviously what that means is that in order to understand the moral principles we also have to look at the efficacy. In order to understand the efficacy, we also have to look at the moral principles in a kind of holistic approach as we look at gun control in order to see what gun control would be justified, what gun control clearly wouldn't, and what gun control is a little bit more nuanced and requires a little bit more
1: understanding in order to have an idea. We we can ask a follow-up question, which is if what I have is enough to protect my life. Can you infringe on my freedom? Say, I think that I need to have X amount of food to be healthy. But you, you go, no, 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 no. You actually only need this much and you take everything else. And if it happens to work out, am I okay? Have my rights not been infringed on? And Dan, you make
0: an excellent point because we completely overlooked a second aspect to the moral discussion here. And that is that that gun rights primarily are a right to life, but they're also a right we keep saying rights in the classical American way, which is such an easy, in, in, <laughs> it's, it's easy to, to slip, slip into. into. It's the
1: way. It's the way. It's the way. Even people who disagree with it speak in, in those terms. Just
0: everyone speaks in these terms, which is why I always end up talking in these terms, and they and they put me in these same yeah. Declaration of Independence word groups that I'm so tired of.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a better way to think of it would be you we put it in terms of justice? Like yeah,
0: we've we put it in terms it of justice, but but the real way to the the best way to describe it is that we believe in in negative rights in that you don't have a list of rights of things you're allowed to do and that the government can't infringe on, which is how most people talk about it. We believe that you have every right to do anything that you want to do with your life because it is yours because you are your own being who has worth who has potential who has value and that the only justice in interfering with that life comes when you interfere with others the only that the only justice in interfering through violence with that life is when you use that life to interfere with violence in someone else's in other words the only justification For gun control, for any specific instance, is when that gun control is being used to stop someone from using a gun to interfere with violence or threat of violence against someone else.
1: Which is to say that gun control is just if I am about to shoot a person unjustly and it stops me. And gun control is unjust if I have a gun in any other circumstances. Well, well,
0: not necessarily, Dan. I can think of a couple other circumstances, or at least one other circumstance right off the bat, where it might be justified. And that's if you've used a gun previously to inflict violence on someone. That changes the discussion.
1: It does, yes. I agree completely. There there can be reasons to restrict your freedom based on past actions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just, I mean,
0: otherwise there'd be no place for any kind of jail or any kind kind of prison ever. Any kind of... Punitive action that was permanent—you you couldn't have right. any punitive it action. Was played you out could, across time. You could only mm-hmm. have reaction, which which yes, we don't agree yes, with. Which would not be yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> be extremely limiting. And that's no justice. Yeah. Justice can be fulfilled over yeah. a course of time.
0: Yeah. There, so there are more nuances to when those cases would play out, but they are predicated on some kind of some kind of violent action towards others, whether that action is, is present, is, is, is happening, has already happened, or is going to happen. And, and that's when it starts to come into play.
1: Which brings us to, to the degree that gun control applies generally, and not specifically to people who are harming people, and not specifically to people who have, we have reason to think, will harm people based on past actions. Such restrictions are unjustified.
0: Yeah, there's no moral justification. And that's, what's crazy is that that's a bold statement. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a bold statement because it really is self-evident that if we have any freedom at all, then we should be able to have things that are potentially dangerous as long as we don't abuse them. If we can't have anything that might possibly hurt someone else at some point in the future without government interference, then that means the government has every right to interfere in every aspect of our lives. Whether that's a kitchen knife that we could someday use to murder someone, whether that's a vehicle that we could someday run someone over with, whether that's our own two hands That we could use to kill someone with everything we have and everything we do could potentially be used to harm another. And so, if you as a government use that as a justification to restrict everyone without any immediate and clear cause, imminent threat of violence towards another human being then there's just no justification for it. There really is no moral
1: justification for it. What about the implications of this? Uh, When you have have a government and you have people licensed to do this kind of thing, right? We call them the police, and we have these authority figures who do it. So don't we in some way, Brad, give up our authority – Aren't we citizens and their police? And there's some kind of fundamental distinction here.
0: <laughs> so, so the
1: argument is. So I can see. I can see the wheels. How the wheels would be turning in someone's head and be like, wait, wait, wait. I agree with all that, except. Yeah, the argument. Is, that's what the police are is for. that we enter society and we agree to give
0: up some of our rights in exchange for living in this society. We say the police are responsible for protecting us. And so they're going to have that full responsibility, and we're going to have a reduced responsibility or no responsibility, depending on the society, you know, depending on what agreement is mm-hmm. reached. And right. and that sounds wonderful, except for the fact that it's a lot of hogwash.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful sounding hogwash. Then is that yes? We-
0: because there there isn't an agreement. Voting is not an agreement. An agreement requires that both parties agree. When you purchase the house, you say, I would like to buy this house for 400,000. They're like, great, we would like to sell it for 400,000. Let's sign a contract and we'll make the exchange. What if instead you said, I would like to sell this house for 400,000. And they said, we would like to sell it for 600,000. And our neighbor would also like to sell it for six hundred thousand. So we're going to vote on it. You're going to you can vote on it too. But if we're in the majority, then you'll just have to buy the house for six hundred thousand. <laughs> and now it's an agreement because we voted on it. You know what I mean? It's right. not.
1: democracy at work.
0: The argument is made that because you choose to live in society, you agree. With the government and with all of its actions. There's the social contract that you've signed with the government by choosing yeah. to stay here. To which I would argue, where can we go? Because everywhere in the world is governed by some government. We we don't have the freedom to live without government. To not sign yeah, a contract. Yeah, to not, not sign a contract. Apparently, We don't have the option to say, hey... We'd like to live within our own home and not be subservient to the U.S. government at all. In fact, people on a regular basis try to do that, and it usually ends up with an FBI standoff, right? Because they say, hey, we, we don't want to follow these laws anymore. We're going to follow our own laws in our own home. And that doesn't seem to fly for some reason, which seems to imply pretty strongly that there is no agreement, That instead, the government operates through force, people have the opportunity to vote, to influence that government, but regardless of what they want and what they agree to, the government has the final say. And that is not an agreement.
1: Right. We talk about social contract, we talk about representation, we talk about these concepts, and they are masks for what is an unfortunate truth, which is that some people rule and some people are ruled. If you disagree with that, ask yourself what you can do about your legislature without voting. If they represent you, if I if someone represents me in anything and they do something contrary to what I want, it's considered null and void. Legally. Legally. You hire someone to do X, and if they don't do X or within the stipulations you set, the act is considered void. They're not officially representing you. But we talk about representation in the US government. We talk about the social contract that doesn't exist. Yeah, and and none of those things. There is no such contract. Right. How do you enforce your end of the contract on government? Yeah. What leverage do you have? Well, you can vote occasionally, but that, frankly, that's a privilege granted to you. And if it doesn't work, tough Yeah. And
0: in fact, there are laws that decide who can vote. And every year, many people are disenfranchised for various reasons. Some of them may be just, some may not be. But the fact is, is that if it really is agreement, shouldn't everyone be allowed to vote no matter what? You know, if if you're if you're a mass murderer in prison, shouldn't you still be allowed to vote if it's your agreement with the government through voting? Because it seems to me if he can't vote and that's the basis of the agreement, then that individual in prison really shouldn't be subservient to laws anymore because they're no longer a willing party, which is what they are when they have the right to vote, vote theoretically, in the social contract argument.
1: Theoretically, yeah, in the social contract argument, if you're, you're a willing party, if you have the right to vote and or if you vote. As Brad was saying, imagine that in a different context. You're, you've you got 10 people living in a house and six of them decide that you are going to pay the rent for everyone yeah, and else. Yeah, we've brought this up before, Dan, and it's a beautiful they, analogy. Right, and they they hold up, they hold up, they have a vote and they let you vote in it. So they're completely justified, right? Obviously not. Obviously they're robbing you, right? These, these six people are holding you hostage. All this is to say that you do not have to give up a darn thing when you enter society. You do not, to associate with Brad, I don't have to give up any of my rights. If I act unjustly, I should be punished and made to repay that. I should be, you know, there can be consequences. And that justifies it. You don't have to create some kind of social contract, which is entirely an illusion because nobody consented to it. The concept of, of tacit consent is another popular one related yeah. to Locke. Uh, Giving up your rights is is often associated with Hobbes. He believed that safety was so important that when you come to society, you had to give up your right to everything, to the sovereign, whichever body that is, so that they then protect everyone. All of this is a con that tries to get you to give up things that you don't have to give up. It was never necessary to think in this manner. It's only necessary if what you believe is that some people should rule and they should get to tell you how to run your life. At that point, you need to come up with some justification. Even if those people are a majority. Right. What makes those people different? Why are they a different kind of human being than you that gets to rule over the kind of human being you are? You have to have some moral justification, and we reject all of them. We are all equal. We are equal in this sense. Yes. And perhaps only in this sense. (laughs) (laughs) Equality is another word that's fraught with all kinds of problems. All
0: kinds of uh, hidden connotation and meaning. Right.
1: Because in one way, you've never seen two people that are equal, and in another way, we're all equal.
0: Yeah, but in the sense of we're all equal in that we all have the rights. We all have the right to our own lives, and none of us has the right to someone else's. And there's no test of intelligence or moral character or anything that justifies any individual in deciding that they should control someone else's life, and that's and that's what this comes down to in, in terms of government. And gun control get a, a great chance to discuss that because that idea has been so obfuscated in this discussion that it doesn't even come up. You know, the it the idea of social contract Democrat, yeah. is so readily agreed on by both sides. That it always comes down to efficacy. It always comes it down always to does. what works and what doesn't, not how does the government have the right to decide for people in the first place, which is really where the discussion should be when we're discussing any issue, any issue at yeah. all.
1: If you're a Democrat, you probably think what we're doing is we're making a Republican argument. We're not. Republican. <laughs> not at <laughs> it all. It may sound similar. Republicans do not believe this. If they believe this, they do not vote like it. And you can- <laughs> No, there there are many Republicans who may
0: be hearing this, who-
1: Who, We're nodding who are nodding along. we are like, yes, yeah. I
0: agree with that, absolutely.
1: Now, why don't we get Trump back
0: in? Yeah, exactly. The, the candidates you're voting for don't believe this in the slightest. The accepted idea is the social contract, and those who serve in Congress accept that every time. A great example is look at what happened with the COVID stimulus packages. The Republicans are very anti the stimulus package. It was voted down almost straight party lines, this most recent package. But a year ago, a year ago, back when Trump was in office and people were a little bit more scared, especially the conservatives, they hadn't quite rallied behind the anti-COVID stance as strong, many, many conservative congresspeople and most conservative Americans, most citizens were in favor of the stimulus package. Of the first stimulus package, even though that stimulus package was predicated on the idea that we were going to steal money from Americans as a whole, from future Americans, from from so many different <laughs> with the groups, inflation yeah, and the with other, so right, many right, different right. where the money comes from
1: is a hot mess that we've discussed in several episodes, other episodes. In so.
0: order to bail out different organizations, in order to bail out state governments, in order to pass a whole slew of stimulus packages, whether personal or or nationwide, because the ends justified the means and because of this idea of the social contract that justified it, that it's okay to steal from someone as long as you want
1: to. The difference between Republicans and Democrats on this issue is one of degree, not of kind. It's yep. so one of degree, not of kind. If they were just more frightened, they would do with, it. With, if they were just yeah, more with, nerve, or if they were in power, they would do COVID, it.
0: With COVID, they said, hey, we've already done enough stimulating, so let's stop. Not, hey, right. stimulus packages are morally unjust, which some of them talked as if they were they believed that, <laughs> even though they had voted <laughs> right. for one a year ago Even before. though they
1: voted for the other one. It's, oh, politicians, just, we haven't joked about this yet. I see a lot of memes on Facebook that are exactly right, that are saying things like, well, it's, I'm looking forward to hearing the Republicans being back to the party that's worrying about the budget again and worrying about <laughs> and worrying about some of their principles again. Both parties tend to do this where they get into office and it's like all the things they were critical of the other party for they then start to practice themselves.
0: So if you think we're agreeing with your party, then we don't make it very clear we're not
1: we're, we hate everybody is what <laughs> we're trying to say.'t we don't, we don't want allies. <laughs> Don't try and group us with them,
0: no, and the fact that you're nodding along and agreeing shows that there's a serious problem that that <laughs> there is that these parties are not representing what people actually want and actually believe in over and over and over again. and it's it's that obfuscation that is the ugly mess that is politics,
1: yeah, yeah. It's the ability to keep that story going while doing yeah, other things. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's to, it's to promise you one thing and then give you something completely different.
1: But convince you you should be happy about it. Yeah. yeah. But we are, after all of that, going to address the efficacy question of gun control. Because I am convinced that what is moral is also what is effective. And that the two actually go hand in hand. That the world is, is organized in such a way – and you can make this case from an evolutionary lens – saying that people, we've evolved to deal with the world and thus what we sense is moral, is the things that have been effective across millions of years, or from a l- religious perspective, right? That your conscience and that your, your, your spirit, per se, is keyed to be able to recognize the things that are good and that are bad and that those are the things that are good for you in this kind of eternal sense.
0: But yeah, but either way, there is a common idea that a lot of people resonate which, with, which is that good things are good and bad things are bad. And they're good, not just in a moral upright sense, but good in the sense of they will actually work and actually be effective.
1: Yeah, that the moral choice is the effective choice.
0: And that idea has become definitely less popular in the last couple (laughs) of decades. If you go and watch movies more and more often, the argument is made and the underlying assumption is, is that if you want to do right, you will be... On a suicide mission. You know, the person who stands up for goodness is the one who dies, and the one who compromises is the one who survives and the one who does good. The one who makes it. Let me say that, say it that way.
1: Right. And I don't think that image holds water. I think you act immorally at your own risk and you will suffer the consequences. Yeah,
0: I think it's an insidious lie that that encourages people to move towards compromise and the argument of practicality above all else
1: right so here is the practical case for gun control for the for our sakes because we believe in the efficacy thing as we just indicated and also because some people are not going to be convinced by our moral arguments we're happy to meet them on another field of battle
0: and we'll bring our guns and we'll bring our guns <laughs> <laughs> sorry i couldn't help i well, couldn't help making well the, the classic conservative argument which is how they but like to finish me. most gun control arguments Is you and what army. And I wanna I wanna speak to that real quick because I thought it was really funny. So I was looking at stats about gun ownership in the United States, which is very famous or infamous, depending on who you talk to. And it turns out that about one third of all the guns in the world are owned by citizens of the United States. And I don't mean that one third of the civilian guns in the world are owned by American civilians, I mean that one-third of all the guns in the world are owned by American citizens. American citizens own an estimated 393 million guns, which roughly breaks out to 120 guns for every 100 people. <laughs> so, so when conservatives that's, that's say, who so and what army... They actually have a case there. They have a case. When you look at the number of guns (laughs) owned by law enforcement and military within the United States and compare that with the number of guns owned by American civilians, and American civilians trounce them in terms of numbers. It's It's just a landslide. The vast majority of guns in the United States are owned by civilians.
1: Right. And you'll see a lot of stats saying things like, and this is why there are so many murders but if there was actually a causal relationship everybody in america would be dead compared to all <laughs> the other countries right if this if if it were literally like the more guns you have the more dead people you have by homicide america would have been annihilated because of rel- how high the relative number of guns is to population compared to other places it does our murder rate reflect that no not even not even close yeah, not we even own close. a crazy amount of guns why do we own so many is it because we love violence well it's partially because we're rich that's one of the correlative factors that that gets rid of so many of these studies yep yeah,
0: if you go back to our original four points about about gun control when we started you know guns are expensive, expensive.
1: <laughs> right i see a lot of studies that try and link things like like the number of guns in an area to the fatality rate. And they'll they'll track it across time. They'll go, look, guns increase, deaths increase. You know what else increases? Wealth. You know what else increases? Population. Which one of these do you think is causing the increase in crime? (laughs) Well, certainly maybe all of them are involved, but if you're not able to account for population and you're not able to account for the differences in wealth, then you are not able to say how much of this is caused by gun ownership. And they never take those extra steps. This is again. This is one of the problems with studies. People look at these studies and they say this proves it, but they don't know how to do studies. Yeah, Even the they don't know do them, how
0: to account for all those variables.
1: Right. And and so what are they? What is the correlation showing? We don't know. We don't know because we can't account for these other things. We can't try and associate which one is actually causal and kind of ne- eliminate these other ones. Now they could. You could run studies that try and do some of those things. Politics is not about what is actually driven it's by about, some of this yeah, data. it's things. about an agenda. It's, it's about the story and it's about the agenda. And so if you want to prove your agenda, as Brad said at the beginning, go find a study. You can find some that'll look nice and in the right context will seem to make your point. But all, almost every gun-related st- gun statistic I have seen, and I, again, I, I don't think there's a single category of law that is that is even close, is useless, almost every single one with very few exceptions. And so if you want to you get a, some good ideas for yourself, start looking at homicides, start looking at how many of them worth guns if, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, the studies, you're going to have to watch very carefully if you want to get good information. So here's the basic case against gun ownership, right? They say there are 19,141 homicides in 2019. This is homicides. This is going to include some things that we probably don't want included in that. But you can also look at murder numbers, but that might exclude some things that you do want included. So homicides is what we went with. Now, of those 19,000, 5,000 were without a gun, roughly, 14,000 roughly with a gun. Certainly, if you were able to get rid of every gun in the United States, every single one of them, they, they disappeared. It was a perfect collection, and they, uh, they evaporated. You were, you were God, and you snapped your fingers, and boom, they are gone. The 14,000 people who committed a murder with a gun, not all 14,000 of them would be willing to commit the murder without a gun.
0: Yeah, that's something that we should all be able to agree on.
1: Which is to say that the murder rate, if every gun was gone, the murder rate would probably go down, be extremely likely to go down. Now, 5,000 people did it without a gun, and when you look at how easy it is to get a gun in the United States? That's crazy. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Maybe they didn't have one in the moment, right? We're not looking just at, at planned things. But when you can get a gun, the fact that more than 25% of them were committed without one is evidence that that gun control doesn't solve all the
0: issues. That if people are going to murder, they're going to murder. You know, homicides are always going to be committed regardless of perfect gun control or not.
1: Right. Now someone could get a sword or a knife and they could start trying to go into a public area, start trying to stab everybody or whatever it may be. And that happens occasionally. You'll see it in countries that have really strict gun control. They will use other weapons. And no doubt that happens less often and is less effective than someone with a gun on a killing spree. It's just easier to stop the guy with a knife, easier to get away from him, easier to do to handle the situation. In
0: other words, Dan, what you're saying is that from a utilitarian perspective, if you had the magic ability to remove all guns, then most likely, and we can't guarantee this, but most likely, there would be less homicides. There would be less yes. murders in the United States if all guns were magically removed. And in that yes. sense, from a utilitarian perspective, gun control would be
1: effective. Yes, and I want to grant that to the people making that case. I'm sure they talk to some people, and they're like, "Am I crazy? Am I am I not speaking, whatever language the person is that I'm speaking to, that they can't seem to grasp this point?" I grant you that point. I think that is true. Now we've probably, from our wording, you've been able to gather some of our objections, some of our some of the reasons why we some still of our think concerns. It's a bad idea because
0: you've chosen to use efficacy as your battleground, not the moral justification. But the practicality, this is the world we live in, people kill people with guns, and we need to stop that. So you need to come up with a plan that's actually going to accomplish that. Because the issue is, is those 393 million guns in the United States. Those guns are here already. You know what I mean? Those guns are guns that are owned By civilians not guns that are being held in shops not guns that are being manufactured those are the guns that people already have and getting those back is no easy task
1: (laughs) to put it getting every single one of them back right and and if you do try and get them back what actually happens what actually happens who do you get them back from and who do you not get them back from because you're not going to get them back from everybody even if you can track them all, you're not going to get a mac from everybody. Because first be of all, there's a variety of ways they disappear.
0: A large number of those guns are already illegal. Not a not a majority. You know, I'm not saying that 200 million of those 393 million, but I'm saying a large number, in the sense of a significant number, a dangerous number, are already illegally owned.
1: If you tried to get them back, you wouldn't even know where to get them. You wouldn't back even from. know
0: where to start the process. You know, you've got criminal organizations, you know, people talk about gang-related shootings in in cities that are a large number of of the homicides that are committed every year. Most of those guns owned by those members of these criminals organizations are not registered. They were not purchased with a background check. They were purchased illegally. There was no paper record, and there's no indication of who owns those guns and who doesn't. The the people who are carrying those guns are already doing so illegally. If they get stopped, if they get detained, and they're found with that gun, they're going to be charged, and that gun's going to be taken away, which means that gun control, making guns illegal, would not affect the legality of what those individuals were doing
1: at all. Right, I'm looking at a statistic. This is from uh, a nationwide study, uh, 2004. But just for our purposes, it pointed out that 52% of the firearms used in a crime were illegal, 48% were legal, which gives you a massive problem already. Yeah. Right? The, the people legally using guns are illegally obtaining them somehow in large amounts.
0: In terms of the actual homicides, in incredibly large amounts, you know, more than half of the of the homicides are already being committed with illegal guns. And that's, with, and that's with legal guns being so easy to
1: obtain already. You'd think if they wanted to obtain illegal guns, if it was really critical for them to obtain illegal guns, they could get a lot more. They could find ways to transport more. You've got to account for the fact that because legal guns are so easy to obtain, there is much less reason to import illegal guns, right? To, to find ways to create them and to manufacture them. So certainly the production of illegal guns could go way up. That's half of the issue. So you're looking at the negative effects of having guns on the homicide rate, right? What are the positive effects of having guns? Are there some? Can you grant a point on this subject as we have granted to you? Because there are many that can be made. There are studies that have indicated, I don't know their, their measurements, that guns are used in self-defense at four times the rate that they're used in violent crimes. You know that's a really difficult stat to track, so I'm, I'm not going to swear by that because police officers are not tracking that, right? This is this is from surveys and things.
0: And the issue is that when you use a gun in self defense, the the legal process is a little bit different. You know, many times guns are used in self defense, no shots are fired. You know, many yes. many homeowners, you know, will brandish a weapon to drive away intruders, and there is no homicide, no one dies, and yet. That that civilian owned gun potentially stopped a crime from occurring. What that crime was going to be, we'll never know because it didn't happen because it didn't happen. But now you get into a more, as Dan said, a more hazy statistical area because you can actually take it a step further and say how many crimes are deterred by the fact that everyone knows someone may have guns that the average household has a decent chance of having a gun. You know, does that affect your likelihood of breaking into someone's home?
1: Absolutely. They did a poll of criminals and they asked them this. How do you pick the places and does the, the potential for a gun in houses and whether you think the place has a gun, does that factor in? And over half of them, it was something like 62% said yes, which should make intuitive sense, right? A criminal doesn't want to get shot. You don't want to <laughs> – you're going to rob a house. You're going to do something, commit some kind of crime. How much money is your life worth? That leaves you with uh, with the fact that, as Brad was indicating, there are a number of crimes deterred by the fact that there are guns out there somewhere and that the person you you may attack may have one and that that does factor in. And You can see that by the fact – one of the other things related to this is that crimes generally – shooting crimes of large groups of people are often in gun-free zones, right? This is one of those – one of those things where you go, how many of these would have been deterred in other places and how many of these could have been stopped quicker in other places? Again, a what if kind of thing. That's mm-hmm. hard, to, hard to put into any kind of numbers. Now, there's an illusion I wanted to spell first off because if you're thinking, well, look, the police can protect you from all of that. That is a pipe dream.
0: Well, and truly. That is a very,
1: very common pipe dream. That has somehow been accepted by a large segment of the population. The national average for the police varies between eight and ten minutes, depending on where you're looking at. Now, for a real emergency, like you said, you know, shots are fired or someone's about to kill me, it's probably significantly it less is than faster. That. But I was looking at uh, fastest police response times in, in places for these kind of situations, and I saw one that had a time of two minutes, and that astounds me. That's it's incredibly that's awesome. fast. Yeah. It's incredibly fast. How do you? Ha- how can you have that as your average in certain circumstances?
0: We have a fire department um, building literally. I gotta count them out in my head now, but it's it's about three hundred yards from my house. Like I could walk to the fire department in about two, maybe three minutes. I could I mm-hmm. could run over there in a minute and a half, right? And my son had a very bad allergic reaction. And so my wife called 911 and the fire department came, you know, they had an EMT there at that fire department and they were there in two or three minutes flat. You know I mean? They were there so fast. You know, she called them, she's on the line with the operator and they got there super fast, but that was them coming, you know, three houses down, you know, their travel time was literally 15 to 20 seconds, you know, to travel from the fire department building to our house, and it still took them two or three minutes, which is why a two-minute response time from the police is insane. Because police are not miracle workers. They physically have to stop oh, what I'm they're betrayed. doing, get into a vehicle, you know, make sure they have whatever they need, make sure they're communicating from the operator to where they're supposed to go, and then physically get there. Those are all very real obstacles That we do not expect the police to be able to magically hurdle. You know, a lot of people are like, this is insane that police response times take this long. No, it's insane that they're that fast. It's actually pretty impressive (laughs) that the average police response time is 8 to 12 minutes. Because depending on where you live, I mean, it's just, there's physical limitations we can't get around here.
1: And in many cities, the average response time is 10 minutes plus in some it is 20 minutes plus which is not I want surprising you to think about that for a second give yourself put yourself in a situation where you are physically at risk from someone else and think about it for a minute and say how long does it take that person to kill me or harm me in a serious way assuming you called the police the second it began
0: yeah the second they arrived
1: because the vast majority of cases by the time you've identified a threat you don't have minutes you have seconds Absolutely. You seconds. How long does it take them to run up and grab you? You know, they've just come through your door. How long does it take them to get to you? Do you have two minutes if you happen to live in literally like the fastest police response time place in the United States? I don't know if you even have two minutes. You, in most cases, you don't. And I'm not trying to scare you here. I, do. I, hate, I hate that politics relies on fear tactics so much. I'm trying to wake you up to what is a physical reality about the nature of police traveling to you and the time it takes and what physical threats and how fast they happen are.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not about scare tactics. It's about the argument is made as part of this social contract argument, going back to earlier, that we've surrendered our right to self-defense and now the police are going to defend us. The police typically do not defend people. The police find out who killed them. Yes, I mean, which isn't nothing, which is not nothing, but it's,
1: but it's a small comfort to you (laughs) when you're dead. But,
0: but in most situations, by the time the police can get there, it's going to be too late. That's why they have such large crime scene investigation units, because it's a crime scene by the time they get there, because, and that's the other thing is the argument that the police will protect you is, is ludicrous. Look at most of these politicians Most of them require private security, which I have nothing against. The reason they require private security is because they need someone physically there with them. Whether it's private security or a police officer physically there with them, they understand that if someone tries to kill them, a police officer at the police precinct, even two blocks away, is not going to help them.
1: It's too slow. It's not going to help them. Bodyguards do not sit in their house waiting for you to call them.
0: Yeah. Bodyguards are already there because it's the only way it will work. And so police cannot be bodyguards for the entire country unless they're physically there with you. You know, if we had a cop literally on every street, you know, patrolling up and down on the sidewalk with his shotgun out, that might be a different story. Of course, at that point, one out of every 10 people would have to be a police officer run into another, <laughs> another issue altogether.
1: How many resources can we throw in that? But let's pretend that the police get to you in time. You happen to be one of the extremely lucky people. You were able to barricade yourself in a room or something, and the police get to you in time. Now, this person is dangerous and is a threat even to the police officer, right? They've got some mm-hmm. kind of weapon. They're armed and dangerous. The police officer might look at the situation, say this is too dangerous, and, wait for and call for backup, and choose not to engage. And when the backup gets there, they may choose not to engage. They may choose to surround the perimeter. They may choose to do all kinds of things other than come and rescue you. And why? Because they're looking out for their own wife. And now you may think, wait a second, a police officer's job is to sacrifice themselves for other people. It's a, it's a, it's a service position. They respond and they put themselves on the line for you. Now some do, but do they have a legal obligation to do that? No. Did you know that if a police officer goes to a crime scene, determines that it's too risky for him to intervene, too risky to his health for him to intervene, and he decides not to, he's completely justified in that? There's no, you can't sue him? You can't do anything to him? And I would say he he does have an obligation to protect you,
0: assuming these other criteria are met. His primary obligation is not to protect you, I think is is really what it comes down to that he's got other obligations first, and one of those is his own safety. And that's not how people often view it. So the point we're trying to make with this is that when it comes to efficacy, you have to factor in it's a lot more than just these stats, just these numbers of what's currently happening now. Because right now, we don't just have guns in the hands of bad guys. We also have guns in the handgun guns in the handguns, guns in the hands of a lot of normal civilians. Of those 393 million guns, the vast majority are not owned by criminals. They're owned by law-abiding citizens.
1: Yes, and one of the interesting things about guns is that you don't have to be – your physical characteristics are irrelevant, you know, with, with some exceptions. I mean, you need hands. You need to be able to operate the gun, right? But your physical strength and uh, – the kind of things that would allow you to physically harm someone with your body are nullified to a large degree by guns, which means that one of the surest ways to protect women against men
0: is with firearms. Absolutely. Is
1: with firearms. And I guarantee you that if you get rid of guns, one of the things you would see increase may not, While homicides may go down. Crimes against women will no doubt increase you've nullified their best protection against people who are physically stronger than they are
0: i thoroughly enjoy guns i have never been interested in concealed carrying a gun i've never carried a knife around me with for for protection i just i just don't care enough to do it right i'm not worried about my physical safety and then i got married and the idea of concealed carry changed for me and it became something i was much more interested in but not for myself, but for my wife, because all of a sudden, as Dan's saying, I got a lot more scared because I'm a pretty big guy, and I know that I can handle myself, and I look a little bit not intimidating, but I look like I look like I could take care of myself, <laughs> and that's a large deterrent. you know, I don't carry anything valuable, and that's a large deterrent, and so I'm not super worried about it, but when I have my my wife who at one point, she was working a nighttime job, and we only had one car, and she would walk home at midnight in Salt Lake City, a town of over a million people, and she would carry a knife in her hand, a pocket knife, when she would walk home, because the threats were different. She, and, you know, she never had to use it, but the fact that she had it made a difference. And it was real, you know what I mean? It was real, the fact that we understood, as she walked home from work every night, That that she could call nine one one if there was if there was a danger if there was someone who approached her, but that they would not be able to get there in time, and she needed to have other options. Yes, and that was that was a real thing that we had to consider. We had to consider our particular circumstances and what she could do to protect herself. And guns, you know, a knife a knife was definitely something, but it wasn't that much of something because
1: because a larger man with a weapon of any kind, not even have to be a gun would be would probably not be deterred by that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I guess that's not quite true because anything you do as a deterrent tends to make them look for easier prey. So it is something. It is something. And it absolutely. is worth doing.
0: Absolutely. Right? Just being aware of your surroundings drastically decreases the chance of you getting attacked because criminals are most likely to look for the easiest prey available. But the ability to to carry a gun is something that allows, as Dan said, someone who's physically less strong to defend themselves against those who are physically stronger. You know, there are many instances of elderly women, grandmas who are in their 70s, who have pulled out a 100-year-old shotgun and deterred criminals, hardened criminals, who broke into their home. And that would not have happened if that 70-year-old grandma pulled up her fist and said, let's go at it.
1: Or a kitchen knife. Or a right? kitchen knife. Which allows for something that I think is beautiful, which is that the people who want to be prepared and want to, be, want to defend themselves can do so in a way that is actually effective. Now, it's not going to save you from someone who shoots you in the back or stabs you in the back, but it can help you in a variety of other situations, people trying to rob you and these other, these other things, which is where practically the responsibility has to be because the police aren't there. And that's the practical problem with gun control, is
0: none of the gun control legislation being considered, from the most mild to the most extreme, can keep guns out of the hands of those who want to use them for for evil. I mean, it, it cannot keep the guns out of the hands of these criminals. It can't even stop them from acquiring more guns, let alone take away the guns they already have. There's just, there's no realistic plan that has been proposed in the last 50 years in the United States to change that. And on top of that, there is no realistic plan that's been proposed by any government body to replace the defensive properties of a legally owned gun. There's no police force that's been able to do it. There's no plan. There's no anything. And so when it comes to the practicalities of it, if you can't stop these criminals from keeping these guns and using these guns, and you can't come up with any system that in the moment can defend people, then then there are some real dangers in gun control on just the practical level that just can't be avoided.
1: At the end of the day you should take steps for your self-defense. Now, not unreasonable ones because the actual risk is not that high. We don't want people to people come away from these discussions and they're like, man, it should be terrified I'm now paranoid. Your life. Statistically, your odds right now of being murdered are extremely low. Your odds of dying in a mass shooting are so low that to be afraid of that is actually irrational. It's uh, Unfortunately, we're not. Our intuition and the, our emotions are not... <laughs> do not react well to terrible visions of our death. We we over-respond to that, and probably should to a degree. But statistically, the odds of you being killed in a mass shooting are much less than other ridiculous things like getting struck by lightning. Even traditional murder, which which there are so many other factors that we didn't get into
0: about why so many homicides are, are committed and things that could be done to affect those numbers. Cause in terms of practicality, there are effective changes that could be made that affect it. You know, look at look at 1920s Prohibition and look at the murder rate. We mentioned that in one of our early episodes about how during Prohibition the homicide rate went way high. It went it went significantly higher than it used to be. And as soon as prohibition was overturned and was removed the homicide rate eventually was cut in half. It's crazy how much of an influence, like 13 spike, because prohibition encouraged crime. It increased the number of people who were actively engaging in organized crime, and organized crime led to, to violence. As yeah, it's the black market exchanges yeah. we were talking Those about. Black yeah. market exchanges are much likelier to result in someone pulling out a gun and shooting someone.
1: Which brings us to the conclusion. Practically speaking, gun control is a bad idea. You can't keep the illegal guns off the streets. But more than that, most
0: of the middle measures would actually make things worse because all you do is keep hands out of the law-abiding citizens and and do nothing who are using them for nefarious purposes. And you you could actually end up with a situation, which is very likely, which is that gun control would actually increase the murder rate, and that's right. and that's not what anyone wants. But more importantly, there's no moral justification for gun control, even if, on a utilitarian perspective, it was effective.
1: And with that, thank you for listening.
0: This has been episode 35 of Rethinking Politics. Tune in next week for more of our random babbling, as our die decides which episode we'll record. You can find us on all of the major podcast apps as well as on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And you can reach us on our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com and our our email at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. You can email us, message us with any questions or concerns or ideas that you happen to have. And tune in next week and have a good one.